You would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. In just a few moments, we'll be looking at chapters 3 and 4. Isn't it funny? We can spend over four weeks and half of a chapter in 1 Peter, but then we go to 1 Samuel, we can cover two in one day. Uh, it's funny how that works, right? Well, while you're flipping there, I'll give a bit of an introduction. Imagine this. You're taking time out of your day, time, energy, all those things, focus out of this other things going on to help your child with a task or to help a child with a task. And instead of saying, thank you for helping me with this, thank you for giving me this time, they reply instead with a very arrogant, no, 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 I can do it by myself. Meanwhile, you know quite well that they cannot do it at all. But why is that something that nearly every child says at some point or another? Well, children, by nature, want to be independent, at least to an extent. And part of that desire is a good thing that drives them to learn and to grow. But in that desire, we also see the sin of pride appear. They want to be the ones in control. And it's very frustrating when you're right there, ready to help them, but they think they know better than you, the parent. Now, sometimes you help despite them not wanting you to, but other times you have to let them fail in order to teach them some level of humility. But thankfully, that sinful desire to be in control and self-sufficient goes away once you become an adult. Yeah, that's a joke. In many ways, adults can be far worse about this sin than their kids can. They have the kids at least the excuse of young ignorance, but the adult does not. So if you thought that adults would know better, know when to ask for help, then you would be wrong. Our walk with the Lord is really the only thing that truly exposes this sin of self-sufficiency in our hearts. And even as mature believers, we love to plunge full steam ahead into whatever we think we're doing without seeking God's will. We like to try to fight sin. We like to try to grow in holiness. We want to save ourselves and others by our own strength. But if there's one thing that the Bible as a whole teaches is that you are completely incapable of bearing any good fruit on your own. It is only as you are connected and united with Christ that you will ever accomplish anything truly fruitful. And that means that you need to seek his help through prayer and his guidance through the word. Because that is where God speaks to us. And so because God speaks to us, we must listen to what he has to tell us. So with that introduction, let's listen to what he has to tell us in 1 Samuel 3 through 4. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to, grow, begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. 
Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord again appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in the line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons Eli, of, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for their fell of Israel, 
30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from a seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So we're going to look at two points as we break down these two chapters. The first point is that because God speaks, we must hear. And this is really looking at chapter 3 all the way through the first part of chapter 4, verse 1. So this part of 1 Samuel begins a section of the book that many refer to as the Ark Narrative. Now that officially begins in chapter 4, but chapter 3 is really the intro into, it's the build up into this Ark Narrative. And in this point, we're primarily concerned with chapter 3. So you may have noticed as we read along that these two chapters read very differently from one another. They're so varied in style and theme and even in the characters that at first glance it seems like they are two completely separate stories that have no connection. The reader of 1 Samuel may be tempted to treat each chapter completely on its own. But this is an instance where I firmly believe that we are meant to approach both of these chapters together. Instead of the differences between these two chapters leading us to divide them, I think the opposite is actually true here. The contrast between chapters 3 and 4 are so strong that I think we're meant to combine them and contrast them with one another. One contrast we can note right away is that the name Yahweh is used in chapter 3 19 times. The Lord, all caps, is the centerpiece of chapter 3. And in this chapter, there are two main aspects of Yahweh that we're meant to see. And that's the reality of his presence and his revelation among his people. But when we get to chapter 4, the name of the Lord is only going to be used once on its own. Instead, the ark of the Lord will appear some 12 times. So 
So what does this change mean for Israel? What does this say about the reality of God's presence in Israel? And what does it say about the revelation of God to his people? Well, those are questions we will answer as we go along. But before we get even further ahead of ourselves, we need to go back to verse 1 of chapter 3 and start breaking down chapter 3. So if you go back to verse 1, we learn very quickly that it was rare to receive revelation from the Lord at this time. Israel had the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible by this time. That's probably all they had recorded. And during these dark days of the judges, under the failing Eli priesthood and the rampant idolatry and syncretism of Israel, God was mostly silent. The truth of the matter is that the silence was a judgment on Israel. It was a judgment on Israel because of her idolatry and rejection of Yahweh. The light of the gospel in Israel was barely flickering at this time. But God was beginning to work a plan that would revive his people. And that faint light was about to become fanned into a roaring flame. In verses 2 through 3, we see imagery that confirms this state of Israel's hope. Eli's sight was growing dim. It was failing, showing not only the failing of his physical sight, but that this seer had no ability to receive the word of God. His line was failing and he would soon be gone. And yet, the lamp of God had not burned out. The seven-branch menorah sat in the tabernacle just outside the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And it was lit, lit every evening and kept burning until morning. And it served really as a symbol of Israel's hope of salvation in the Lord. And here we see an example of how rich the imagery really is in this book. The author could have simply told us that all these events took place during the middle of the night. But instead, he gives us info using temple language. And the temple is going to be very important in this chapter. Samuel and Eli lived at the temple in Shiloh. And it is there in Shiloh that we see the first mention of the ark in the chapter. But notice the wording there. That is where the ark of God was, past tense. And I think this is more than a subtle hint that the ark is no longer in Shiloh. And we'll get to that in chapter 4. In verse 4, we see something odd given what we know about Revelation at that time. Yahweh spoke. That was extremely rare then. But what is even more shocking is that God did not speak to the high priest or to his sons. He called to a young boy who, according to Jewish tradition, was probably about 12 years old at this time. And here we see yet another example of the themes from Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 being carried on in the book. God rejected the man in high position with title and instead spoke to a boy who lacked any title and had an unimpressive genealogy. But Samuel, being young, did not know what was going on in this story. He hears someone calling his name, he gets up and he runs to Eli. And his job likely included helping Eli with whatever he needed him to do. And so if you're awakened in the middle of the night, you probably would have run to your master if you heard your name called. But to his surprise, Eli had not called him. Instead, Eli sends him back to bed. But then God calls Samuel again. So back Samuel goes to Eli to wake him up, only to be sent back to bed again, likely by an annoyed Eli. 
So why didn't Samuel understand what was happening here? Well, I don't think we should be too hard on Samuel for not understanding that Yahweh was speaking to him. In verse 7, the author clues us in that though Samuel was already growing, though he already loved the Lord, he had never received any sort of revelation or any visions at this point. And why should a servant boy of 12 years old who's not part of the high priest family line expect to hear a vision? Well, then in verse 8, we see that the Lord called to Samuel a third time. And it's at this point in the story that we need to give Eli some credit. Instead of losing his temper and yelling at Samuel for waking him up a third time in this night, he realizes that something else is going on. It seems that the significance of this occurring a third time is what clued Eli in that the Lord was at work. So Eli may have been largely a failure, but he was not completely blind. His spiritual sight was dim, but it was not totally gone. He recognized that Yahweh was likely speaking to Samuel. So he sent the boy back to bed, but this time with instructions for how to reply if the Lord called to him again. And at this point, you need to stop and just try to imagine the anticipation going on in Eli's heart and mind at this point. God has been largely silent now for generations. Then he sent a prophet to pronounce judgment against you and your sons. Now, years later, he is speaking again. But he isn't speaking to you, the high priest, or to your sons. He's now speaking to a 12-year-old boy. So what is this message? Why didn't it come to me, and is it good or bad? Well, now you have to wait to find out God's message from one of your servants. Well, in verse 10, we see that Yahweh, the God of the universe, came and stood, calling Samuel, Samuel. This was more than just sending word to Samuel. There was some sort of theophany that accompanied this message, though we're not told what form that took. So whether this was a pre-incarnate Christ or something else, we don't know. But we do know that the Lord came and stood before Samuel in some form. Then the Lord called Samuel's name twice, just as he had done when calling Abraham, Jacob, and Moses at crucial points in their lives. So while at a crucial juncture in Samuel's life and in Israel's history, it's not happy news that Samuel receives. When the Old Testament uses the language of tingling ears, it is almost always refers to the judgment of God falling on mankind. And oftentimes it refers to it falling directly on Israel. And the judgment of God is about to fall on Eli and his entire household. He failed to restrain the evil of his sons. And the penalty for blaspheming in Israel is the death penalty. So not only were Hophni and Phinehas not put to death by their father, Eli did not even manage to keep them under control. Well, now the Lord, the true judge, the true defender of his own holiness, will exact judgment on Eli and his sons. And here we see an irony in the passage. Eli was one of the judges over all of Israel, but now he himself will be judged by Yahweh. The words of the unknown prophet back in chapter 2, who delivered God's promise of judgment against the Eli priesthood, are now about to be fulfilled. The guilt of Eli's household was so great that the Lord declared in verse 14 that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for forever. Now, some take this to only be referring to their priestly role, but honestly, I think it's more severe than that. 
I think this is a pronouncement, a divine judgment on their office, yes, but also a death sentence in body and in soul. An entire priestly line has been weighed and has been found severely wanting. Well, this was a frightening message that Samuel received. And Samuel definitely found this message frightening too, since he was in no hurry to tell Eli what he had just heard. He woke up and he got busy with his daily duties, I'm sure hoping that Eli would not find him and ask what the message was. But Eli knew enough to know that this message could not have been a good thing. And so he found Samuel and he laid down an oath, forcing Samuel to tell him what he had heard. And notice just again the irony here that the high priest has to chase down a child and threaten him in order to hear the word of the Lord. And so a boy was forced to deliver to his master, mentor, and boss a formal declaration of God's judgment and condemnation. So really how backwards this whole situation is in which a temple servant has to tell the high priest God's word and that that message is a message of judgment upon his entire line. Well, there are a lot of different ways in which Eli could have responded to this message. But notice how strange his response is in verse 18. At first glance, this seems like a very humble response. He accepts Yahweh's rejection of his line and the judgment to fall on his family. He also seems to affirm that God as judge is right in whatever he does. But on the other hand, there's something missing here if this is truly humble acceptance. First of all, where is the repentance? Why is there mourning? Why is there no lament or grief over this? Well, honestly, we don't have answers to these questions. But it seems to me that Eli had simply resigned himself to his fate. He was old, he was weak, he was ineffectual, and he lacked any depth of zeal for Yahweh. And I believe that Eli's response is really one of indifference and resignation, not humility or faith. And I think that's important as well because Eli operates in this book as a literary foil to Samuel. Everything that Eli lacked, Samuel had in abundance. And he had four things in this passage that Eli explicitly lacked. First, it is said of Samuel that Yahweh was with him. And that is never once said of Eli in the book of 1 Samuel. It is God's presence that ensured that Samuel grew and succeeded in all that he did. And so significant was his presence with Samuel that verse 21 says that the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Well, second, Samuel had a godly reputation from Dan to Beersheba. Now, those are the far northern and southern reaches of Israel. So that means that everyone there and in between knew that there was a godly man serving at the temple in Shiloh. Eli and his sons had a heinous reputation throughout the whole of Israel as crooks and as blasphemers. But the Lord was restoring the honor of Shiloh and his name through Samuel. Well, third, Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord in this text. And again, Eli is never said to receive the word of the Lord even once. And then fourth, going closely along with that third point, Samuel was a mouthpiece to all of Israel of God's word. So again, Eli didn't receive revelation. But Samuel not only receives God's word, 
but then proclaims it to everybody in the whole nation. The well of revelation was pouring forth truth after years of spiritual drought in Israel. But before we are tempted to give all the praise to Samuel, we do need to remember that he is not the main actor in this text. Yahweh is the one sovereignly working out his plan in this passage to revive Israel. Samuel was a godly leader, but God is the one who raised Samuel up according to his sovereign plan. God is the one at work in all of this, but he also uses means in order to accomplish his purposes. And his means in this part of Israel's history was to raise up Samuel as a prophet. Samuel was already the answer to Hannah's physical barrenness, but now he will be a part of God's solution for Israel's spiritual barrenness as well. God was speaking directly to his people then, just as he does now through his word. Eli and his sons, they heard the truth, but they did not truly hear. Because if they truly heard, then they would have obeyed. They would have repented. They would have grieved over their sin. That leads us into the second point. Because God speaks, we must obey. So as we turn to chapter 4, we see a change in tone and in style. And this is that official start of the ark narrative that continues all the way up into the beginning of chapter 7. In chapter 3, the main actor and focus was Yahweh. In chapter 4, the main character becomes the ark of Yahweh. Now that word ark is used around 12 times throughout this chapter. So before, Yahweh was the active character moving the story along. Now the ark becomes the main character, despite being passive in the literary sense in this story. Now that doesn't mean that God is not at work in this section. God was the one leading in the previous chapter and now in this one. But now Israel is going to be said to be the one moving on their own, without seeking to consult or honor the Lord in their decisions. And what we will see is that the Lord was at work through the ark in ways that Israel did not expect. God's presence with Samuel was for his blessing and for the good of Israel. So the question as we continue in this chapter is this, what will the presence of the ark bring for Israel? Well, right away, the reader should be concerned when looking at verse one of chapter four. The first part of the verse reemphasizes Samuel's role as a prophet in Israel. God had been mostly silent for a long time, but now he is speaking. But then there's this jarring transition in the exact same verse. And the change of topics is so fast, you're likely to get whiplash as a reader. But suddenly we move from talking about the revelation of God to his people to Israel, going out to fight a battle against the Philistines. And pay attention to the language as well. They weren't attacked and then put on the defensive. They were on the offensive, going out on their own initiative to attack the Philistines. And it's in this jarring transition that we see that something else is ominously lacking in verse 1. The author just told us that Samuel is in Shiloh where the Lord is now speaking to Israel. But Israel goes out to battle on their own initiative without ever seeking the Lord's counsel or waiting for a command to do so. And this is a dangerous picture of having everything you need in your God 
but deciding to go it alone instead. And the result of fighting a battle on your own will always end in defeat, and the same was true for Israel. They went out on their own, they fought, and they lost. And because of that, 4,000 men die, all because of a failure to seek out the Lord's will. At that point, Israel was completely blind spiritually. So the obvious answer that they needed is to go to the Lord in repentance, but that's never even mentioned as an option in their minds. In verse 3, they blame their loss on God, asking why he defeated them. They recognize that the hand of the Lord was against them in the battle. But their solution was not to go to God in repentance and faith. They didn't even try to go to Samuel and see what happened. No. Instead, they said, we need to bring the ark of the Lord with us, and then we will win. Well, neither Samuel nor Eli are mentioned at all, and they do not appear to have been consulted in any way. Instead, Hophni and Phinehas brought the ark to the army of Israel. Stop and consider for a moment just how foolish a plan this is. They already said that it was the presence of the Lord among them that that had caused their defeat. They already knew he was present without the ark. But their solution is to bring the ark, which is a symbol of God's presence among them. And here's really the underlying problem. They did not understand who God was. And consequently, they did not understand what the ark was. In their idolatrous and in their rebellious hearts, the ark was simply a good luck totem that they could use and wield as a weapon. And their own words in verse 4 show that they did not understand the true nature of God. They describe the almighty God of the universe as enthroned on the cherubim. And in one sense, it was a true statement. But in another, it's a vast misunderstanding of the immensity of God. I think that in their minds, they truly believe they could carry God along with them by carrying the ark. They had reduced Almighty Yahweh to a physical thing that they could carry and wield. But Yahweh was still pretty powerful in their mind, meaning if they had the ark with them, they couldn't lose, right? But they could not have been more incorrect in their understanding of who Yahweh is. Well, then in verse 5, we see what is probably one of the most depressing scenes of impending doom in Scripture. Israel cheers and they shout so loudly that the earth shook beneath them. They thought victory was now guaranteed and that God was going to annihilate the Philistines before them. And so they rejoice. They're loud. They're upbeat. They're ready to fight. But all of their hope was misplaced because it was not in the Lord, but in a God of their own creation. Furthermore, the two men guiding the ark along were doomed men. Therefore, tens of thousands of Israelites marched to their destruction with thunderous shouts of misplaced hope. As the saying goes, pride goes before the fall. We had another sign that Israel's understanding of the Lord was woefully incorrect is that the Philistines understood the presence of the ark in basically the same way that the Israelites did. They thought a God was coming at them and that they were doomed. They too thought that this physical object was a weapon to be wielded in war. 
But in a way, the Philistines actually even won up the Israelites by describing God more than the Israelites had. The Philistines were terrified of the God who had struck the Egyptians. You may have noticed Israel didn't mention a single thing about God, just his ark. But rather than give up, the Philistines told each other to man up and fight. What is the result of the battle? In the eyes of the world, the Philistines won that round. But notice that the author of 1 Samuel doesn't say that the Philistines won. So who is it that defeated the Israelites in verse 10? The author just says that the Philistines fought, but then separately that Israel was defeated, but not by the Philistines. Israel is said to have been passively defeated, but the conqueror is not explicitly stated. And I believe that was very intentional. And we'll return to that point in just a moment. But let's look at the cost of this exercise in human ability and self-sufficiency. 30,000 men die. That is more than seven times the number that fell in the first battle, showing Israel's total inability and failure. Hophni and Phinehas died and the ark was captured by the Philistines. And so a runner, a messenger, sent back to Israel with news of this terrible outcome. And this young Benjamite, Benjaminite arrived at Shiloh where Eli sat anxiously waiting for news. We're told that his heart trembled for the ark of God. And I think this is a lot more than just a little anxiety over whether or not it was going to be damaged in this fight. He knew the prophecy against him and his family lying. And now a seemingly perfect storm had arisen that could bring the entire prophecy to fulfillment in a moment. And when he heard the reactions of the people, he had to already know the answer to his question. But he asked this man from Benjamin anyway. And the report is that those who are alive are running for their lives. Many thousands are dead. Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark has been taken. And at this news, the obese Eli fell over backwards off his seat, broke his neck and died. But it was not hearing about the defeat that led to him being killed. It wasn't even hearing that his sons had died. We are specifically told that it was the mention of the ark that led to his fall. Why? Well, based on Eli's past history in this book, I don't think it was a zeal for the holiness of the Lord that caused his death. I think it was the realization that this great disaster was brought about by the Lord. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, in his response to this prophecy against him, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And at that moment, I don't think he had any idea that the way the Lord would fulfill his word was by abandoning Israel and taking the symbol of his presence away. It's possible Eli didn't think anything was going to happen. But seeing the glory of Israel depart because of him and his family I think that was too much for Eli in the end. He saw his complete defeat and damnation, and he knew in that moment he was dead. And so the second to last judge of Israel died after judging Israel for 40 years. And this sad event was memorialized not by thankfulness for his service, not by grieving over him, but by the words of his daughter-in-law. Phineas' wife gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod. And his name means no glory, or where is the glory, or there is no glory. 
So altogether, then, you can read the words in verse 21. As she named the child, no glory, saying the glory has departed from Israel. And then you connect it with her words in verse 22. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Notice that even now, it is not apparent that anyone recognized what had really happened in this defeat. They knew the ark was gone and with it the glory of God's special presence. But Phineas's wife fails to make any mention of Yahweh himself, only his ark. Later on in Israel's history, the priests, the kings, the prophets, they would fall so far into sin and rebellion and idolatry that finally God gave them up to the hands of the Babylonians to be exiled. But here in a way we see the reverse take place. Because of the Elides priesthood sin, Israel experienced a reverse exile where the Lord left them. They failed to love, honor, and serve Yahweh as he commanded, instead choosing to make an idol out of the ark itself. They thought that they could wield God as a weapon in war, but they were instead destroyed by the hand of the one whom the ark only represented. And this is where hardened rebellion against Almighty God leads you in the end. As Paul put it in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not Mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Eli and his sons, they sowed blasphemy and they reaped death as a reward. Let's wrap this up and conclude. If these two chapters teach us one thing very clearly, is that Yahweh is the holy and supreme God who is over all. And because of that, he alone is worthy of our respect, our honor, our obedience, and our praise. A holy God like the Lord cannot be served according to the machinations of our own minds and our own desires. Yahweh must be worshipped and served as he has instructed his creatures. And part of the way we serve the Lord is by going to him and listening to his instructions. And to truly listen to someone is not just to audibly hear the message. It involves both accurately hearing the message and then reacting appropriately to that revelation. God has given us his word to teach us how we may love and obey him alone. The gospel has come to you. So how will you respond to that message? Gospel is always doing one of two things in the hearts of his hearers. Eli, his sons, and Israel, they heard the message they needed to hear, but they did not listen to it. Instead of seeking the Lord and his glory, they served themselves and they gave themselves glory instead. So if you choose to rebel against God, know for certain that there is only one possible outcome, and that is the destruction of your body and your soul and in hell. His holy presence will destroy you. If you reject Christ and you decide that you can do it all by your own strength, know that the the gospel of Jesus has condemned you. That same sin that begins in us as children saying, I can do it by myself, may seem harmless. But when that sin is fully grown, it brings death. On your own, you are doomed with only one way out. And the only way to escape eternal destruction is to do what Eli and his sons could not do. 
And that is to admit that you are incomplete, incapable, and entirely unworthy on your own. Because only then can you go to Christ in repentance to the one who is worthy. Jesus did not come into the world to save the healthy, but the sick. And having purchased glory for all his children, he ascended into glory where he sits at the Father's right hand, reigning. From that same place, he has sent out his spirit to dwell among his people, a fuller presence than the ark could ever picture. And while the presence of God judges and consumes the wicked, it is life and blessing for those redeemed in Christ. So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for accounts like this in Scripture that prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that on our own we are without hope. That there is nothing in us that can warrant.